The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Good morning and welcome to the latest Go Radio Business Show with Sir Tom Hunter and Lord Willie Hockey. I'm Donald Martin, editor of The Herald and The Herald on Sunday, and your host as we discuss the latest business headlines, inspirational success stories, and of course, brilliant advice from the board you can't afford. We're also joined this morning by special guests Cameron Dixon and Lara Messer, owners of Bare Bones Chocolate. And our business titans, Tom and Willie, are here to provide support for local business. So if you want advice or have a business question for our dynamic duo, please email gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the Twitter conversation at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. Gentlemen, lots of contentious issues grabbing the headlines this week. I was going to start with energy and costs and shortages. Well, Donald, can I just start by saying the Herald's been hitting the headlines this week. So what's been happening? Oh, thanks. That's awfully nice of you. We've uh, <laughs> won a few awards, uh, which is great in terms of business. Um, take my hat off to Ian McConnell, our business editor. Well done, Ian. He's uh, voted the best Scottish journalist by the Association of Investment Companies. And he is. Uh, he's, he's superb. And there's Martin Williams, who was the business and finance journalist of the year in the UK Regional Press Awards. And then to top well it all, done. Herald on Sunday... I'm really pleased for the team because they've been voted the best Sunday newspaper of the year uh, for the second time in three years. So it only launched three years ago. So that's not bad. So, Fantastic. Uh, so well done, done to the team. Off to the team but thank you for, yeah, thank well you for noticing all the coverage we've been given. It, to so. be fair, if it wasn't for the business section in the Herald, I don't know where we would be because it's fantastic. It's the go-to place if you want to know how business is doing in Scotland. Yeah, oh, that's great. And this is the go-to show if you want to know about business support and advice. Oh, very right? slick, Willie, yeah. Have you been away <laughs> in a course, Donald? Have me? you been away in a course? <laughs> right, switch that auto cue off now. Right. Back to energy costs and shortages. What impact do you think it'll have on business and consumers? Huge. Absolutely huge. And I think what it's demonstrated this week, when you have national utility providers... Uh, and you've seen all of these smaller companies that have spawned in the last 10, 15 years. When you have a grip on a sector the way that the, the big players have, it's very, very difficult to survive. And what you're finding now is, is that no one is surprised as to what's happened, right? And there'll be more and more, I would have imagined that most of the smaller providers, and some larger providers, obviously, you know, unfortunately went bust this week. I think there'll be more and more. You, you, you maybe in the next eighteen months to two years, you'll, you know, you'll end up again with a, with two or three or four larger providers of utilities. Yeah, they're now warning that despite uh, the message from government, there's a short term problem. That actually, it's a lot longer. It's up to the two years. Well, it's it's certainly not a short term problem uh, that. They believe they can get it fixed because everybody's just going to go back. You know, that these people were all kind of, I would call, secondary providers, right? We're still getting their energy from the same people. That's why it's so easy to switch back today because it was the same people who were providing. Thankfully, that is the situation. But the whole, the whole situation has to be looked at. We have a policy from the UK government, Scottish government, where we want to move away from gas. Quite rightly so. We don't want to be held by the Russians so they can switch a tap off and, you know, everybody's got no, you know, energy. I think that this is a, a time for you to look at the whole renewable situation, what we're doing. This is a wake-up call. Uh, I, I think that uh, in something, there should be a think tank put together just now to look at the whole energy supply. 
Are we too quick to switch off nuclear power, Tom? Yeah, I mean, the elephant in the room here is the only, the only long-term answer to the world's energy needs is nuclear. That is the fact that no politician will tell you. But um, there's a brilliant um, documentary, I think it's on Netflix, and Bill Gates talks about um, the world's energy needs and he concludes about nuclear energy. But at, at the time, and I don't know what the update has been, but at the time he was investing in a company which was making nuclear safe, really because they had looked at it from all different points of view, turned it in its head, and actually came up with a solution. Now, I don't know what happened after that, but, you know, in the energy mix, nuclear must be in the mix. But the other thing about this market that's happening just now, it's, well, first of all, it's a very, very bad business model from these small providers, Willie. You know, they are... They are taking contracts, so they're buying short term and they are capped by the government of how much they can charge. Therefore, who would ever invest in that business? I mean, it's just, it, it doesn't work, Willie. Tom, this was a ruse. This was a ruse to kind of demonstrate that there wasn't a duopoly, really, in the big providers. So they had to look as if that they were allowing small guys into the market. Yeah. These small guys had to rely on the big providers. So that yeah. was all it was for. And that's why it's easy for them this week to just say, yeah, they'll all swap over now. And it's, it's so simple. Luckily, luckily that they're all connected to the same grid. But I think that, that this is why that we have to have a serious look. And I totally agree with you. You know, until we find the magic, magic formula for fusion... Nuclear is the, we we need safer nuclear until we have a better option. Oh, nice and controversial to start with. The Greens will not be happy with you. Well, the Greens are not happy this week because there was no wind in August, <laughs> so the turbines weren't <laughs> no the whirly gigs weren't flying round. It's one thing we're not short of, and the Go Radio Business Show is wind. <laughs> <laughs> there are fears that uh, of rising inflation. How worried are you? And again, what impact is it going to have on consumers and business? Very worried. Yeah, um, and I've been saying this for months and months and months. I've had a wee private bet with one of my friends and uh, I think that we could be heading to the perfect storm. You know, they're saying that, uh, you know, that I, I definitely believe that inflation will go above the 4% laid down by the BOE. Definitely. Now, I watched uh, Jerome Powell this morning saying that no, that there's no panic with them and it'll be steady and it'll, it'll stay there at four for a while then hopefully it should start to go down, right? Um, I have to get one of those watches that Tom's got that plays music. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, uh, I think that uh, inflation will be, I think inflation will be near 6% by Christmas, if not 8%. And I think it'll be very, very difficult to keep interest rates at the rates that there are at the moment if inflation gets to this number. And then they'll tackle quantitative easing as well because that's all of the issues to dumb down with inflation rising. Yeah, I think I I kind of disagreed with Willie way back. I said inflation wasn't my number one worry. Um, and then when we saw the price of steel and bricks and cement going up at our development in Winchborough, it kind of brought me back to earth. But what we're trying to work out just now is what is transitory 
inflation and what is with us forever. And it's not clear. Um, you know, is it just that the world is starting up again and supply chains are getting there, Willie, and therefore prices peak at this time? We had Jim McGonagall on talking about container prices. And it's 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 the one unknown is um is cement prices going back to where they were? Is it are they up forever? You know, I think the one thing in the inflation um basket that's going up forever are wages. Because there has been this um I mean, Willie and I really worried about unemployment at the beginning of the pandemic, but you know, there are so many industries now where they are crying out to take people on and there's not enough people and we haven't trained enough people. And, um, you know, furlough's going to finish next week. And um, I actually think it's going to be smoother than we first thought at the beginning, Willie. But it isn't a perfect labour market. There are profound changes. So someone who has been furloughed and then lost their job it's, it's quite hard for them to get into the vacancies. You know, there's a million vacancies in the UK just now, but we haven't invested enough in training. And um, that to say, oh, well, there's a million vacancies and 1.5 million people out of job, therefore there's only half a million. The labour market doesn't quite work that way. Therefore, this transitory movement of labour into new jobs, we really need to help. And employers need to do their bit. I'm, I'm not... Um, I'm not moaning at the government in this one, to be honest with you. So employers will probably have to invest in training, but yeah. they're also going to have to pay more for staff. They are. What impact will that have? So there's only one person pays for all this, and that's the customer, Willie. Yeah. Um, and if you're in an industry, some industries are easier to pass it on, some are not because they're price capped, like the energy suppliers so so they are told by the government no that's the price cap you cannot raise your prices or above that that's a very political position but at the end of the day there's only one person pays for all this and that's the customer so yeah. prices go up inflation's rising Willie you were warning it could go up to eight percent where do you see interest rates going because that's normally the lever used to tackle it yeah I, I just don't think that there's any way if inf if inflation goes to eight percent, that you know that interest rates can stay at these historical low levels. Um, it must go up. It must go up. There has to be a, a correlation between both. But I think the problem that we all have at the moment is the experts will will generally look at the data, um, and I'm saying that the data at the moment is screwed, right? Because no one knows, no one knew what was really going to happen with Brexit until it happened. The problem is at the moment for us is we 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 can't uh, we we can't actually see the effect of Brexit because of COVID, right? So everything is distorted. I think the same. I think the furlough scheme has has distorted all the figures as well. So the experts are there's, there's a lot of guesstimating going on, right? Rather than being backed by scientific data, and I think that once the furlough scheme is over, we will see a huge shift from 1.5 million vacancies, you know, 1.5 million vacancies to, like, you know, I think, I still believe that we'll end up with a net, more people will be unemployed than before COVID came. Tom? Yeah, I, I think all our crystal balls are a bit cloudy, Willie. Mm -hmm. um, but 
Let's have a wee bet this morning on the Go Radio Business Show. I don't think inflation's going to 8%. Right. Um, and interest rates, we have all got used to these historic lows. I remember, Willie, when I first started in business, the interest rate was 18, 1.8%. I remember it. Now, there's only me and you are old enough to remember that, Willie. Yeah. When you speak to young folks today and, and tell them 18%, they say, what? You know? So I think the... The ten-year bond rate is still looking pretty low, so that's that's an indication to say that we're not going to get to you know there there may be modest rises, but I don't think the economy could stand big interest rate rises because we've all become used to low interest environment. Yeah, I think there could be temporary spikes, but I definitely think that uh, uh, we're having the wee bit. I, I'm saying that by Christmas that people will be talking about 2% for interest rates. Okay, so so I'm saying inflation's not getting to 8 and he's saying it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and let's just say interest rates, right, it's not getting to 2%. Okay. And Willie's saying it is. Okay. So what's 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 the bet, Willie? Come on. Um, I'm going to get all of the chocolate biscuits that you've got beside you against <laughs> all of the chocolate biscuits that I don't have beside me. Right. <laughs> Tonnocks, chocolate whoever, biscuits. Whoever loses pays for the Christmas lunch. Right, you're on. The Go Radio Business Show Christmas lunch. So we, we want the listeners to be the witness to this. <laughs> Excellent. Stock markets have been spooked this week by fears that the Chinese real estate giant Evergrande could default on its... billion (laughs) debt. Are you relaxed or worried, Willie? We've been touching on it over the last few weeks and, uh, you know, throughout the globe now, again, the data is is, is screwed. I I think that um, this is a real warning what's happened here. It obviously had an effect on the markets across the globe. And I have to say, um, why, why did the Chinese government let this happen? No, they're generally, they generally stop this sort of thing. I'm, I think across the board, the Chinese are sending out different messages to the world. They're doing it with their own, you know, the very rich guys are getting dragged in, they're getting pegged back. So Ch- China is playing a, a, a game here, I think, with the rest of the world. If, if anything can happen in China that can have an effect across the globe, then I think China has a good look at it and thinks, what's, what's in this for us or what's, what's against us in this? And they decide whether they're going to let that happen or not. And they could, preve- they could have prevented the Evergrande, let's call it the default. And I think the default kicks in today. Uh, so it's interesting that they've allowed that to happen. Oh God, we are in a controversial mood this morning. Tom, wow. do you agree with that? China playing games with the world? Oh, goodness, that's above my pay grade. I, <laughs> I, I couldn't take a bet on that one. It's for a whole new show. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's it's something that we worry about. Um, we have got part of our portfolio in stocks, but and it's, and it's not what I really understand as someone else in the business does it. And um, what they were showing me this week was a graph that showed that there's 50 stocks, only 50 stocks, have moved the market um, by the biggest amount. The, the rest of them haven't really moved the market. So the Apples, the Googles, the Facebooks, there's a group of 50 stocks. And there's a business um, based in Edinburgh called Bailey Gifford, which is one of, the, it's one of Scotland's un, unsung heroes. Maybe the listeners have never heard of them. And um, there is a fund manager called James Anderson 
who only came to light. Um, he, he was anonymous for all his years in business. He's, he's a brilliant, he's, he's thought of as one of the best in the world. And he only came to light, Willie, when he put some money into Hearts. When he got involved in football. And then he, <laughs> and then he put some money into Scottish football. But, but James Anderson, he's just retiring, um, ran something called Scottish Mortgage. Now, it's not really Scottish and they don't do mortgages, which was amazing to me. But he thinks there are only um, less than 200 stocks in the world that are investable. Now, oh. you've just got to find out what the, what the 200 are. So generally, I think, you know, this is a real, you know, only 200 in the world that's worth it. And 50 stocks moved the S&P market, you know, it's, it's incredible this. And therefore, that means there's a lot of very average companies which are too highly valued. And um, it used to be that we were hit by a crisis every 10 years. That was the rule. Now, the last one was 2008. So do the arithmetic this morning. I'm a wee bit worried. Well, nicely ties in with you. So it was just a couple of weeks ago, the top market guru who predicted that 2008 crash, Raghuram Rajan, warns of rampant inflation, fast interest rate rises, and a massive stock market slide if businesses suffer more lockdowns. He's been speaking to Willie. Yeah. Are you pessimistic or optimistic, well, I, Willie? <laughs> I said it four weeks before him, so I All don't right. know if he'd be listening into the show or not. But uh, I don't know about rampant, but I think he there's more chance of him being right at the moment than the people saying that it's going to be good and it's going to bottom out at 4%. I think there's more chance. So so we, we try and find the best companies and, you know, it's a generalisation to talk about the stock market, um, but there we are, 50 companies move that market more than any others. So it's just a matter of finding those 50. And um, But there are there are fund managers out there who, who just believe in this. Um, Chris Hawn's one of them. Terry Smith is one of them. James Anderson, Tom Slater at um, Bailey Gifford or others. So I think there's a fundamental flaw in the markets if, if, if there's only... If there's less than 200 companies in the world that are investable. Wow. Scotland's missing out on a second free port due to the SNP, SNP government's insistence that the UK must ensure there's a strong commitment to fair work, which means payment of the real living wage, and support for the drive to net zero. Is that petty point scoring or a principled stand, Willie? Forgive my ignorance, but I'd love to know what the Freeport is all about. You know, I've read about them. I've read them. We may be getting one. We may not be getting the second one. I'd love for someone to explain to me the advantages of having a Freeport. You know, um, I haven't went into it in great detail, but if the reason for not getting allegedly the second one, if it's this, then it's something like it's all part of this big conversation going forward. Tom mentioned that it is about what people get paid, you know, and, and, and everyone's approach to ESG, right? So the whole green issue thing, I think will be at the forefront of every discussion of every business. And, and, and again, just touching on that, one of the things that I think will make a huge difference now they seem to be going to, you know, individual companies are taking it upon themselves to set their own targets. Like last week, I think, with the first ever um, carbon neutral presentation of a football game with Sky and Spurs, right? So I'd like to know how they worked that out and how they've done it. But I think as a business, 
I would love someone to come and say to me, here's the rules, here's what we need to do, because I'm all for it. You know, if we all take it upon ourselves to do our bit for reducing emissions, I'm, I'm right up for that. Tom? Yeah, if you take it, and I'm like, well, I, I haven't got in my head, right, here's the three big big things that a free port delivers. Um, so I, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I'm, I don't know what, what they are. Maybe somebody can phone in and tell us. Yeah, it'd be great to know. And, um, and on the face of it, it's, you know, it's removing the, the, the duty tax, import tax to yeah. make everything cheaper. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, but uh, what we all think is, oh, good, we've got a big giant duty free, right? So, for the uneducated, that's what we think. So, I'd like you know about what the actual benefits are. So, on the face of it, um, a living wage, going to net zero, these things are good things. Yeah. Now, the dirty, murky politics behind it. <laughs> Well, he knows more than me, so I'm I'm going to defer to my colleagues. I, I think this will be the norm within five years. Well, Boris was over meeting Biden, President Biden, this week. He failed to get his promised trade deal. Although, to be fair, restrictions are being removed from the sale of British lamb. So do we really need a big trade deal? Because that's what Biden is basically saying. Look, I'm, there's too much to do at the moment without doing these big deals, but we'll incrementally tackle things. Is that the right way forward or do we need a big bang? I would love to ask the people of the UK, now knowing what they know about Brexit, I'd love us to go to the polls next week to vote on it. Right, I think it'd be an absolute landslide that people would say no. All the big promises, every single thing that is happening... Uh, is an absolute disaster. And this is the latest one, you know, the big, big promise. We're going to have this huge deal with the States. They absolutely dismissed them live on TV. Dismissed them. <laughs> now, we won't be talking about it. Talk to, you know, if you want to get involved with the deal that we've got with Canada, have a wee chat with them. You know, I think that the, the, the Boris is getting found out every single day, as far as I'm concerned, in relation to Brexit. Right, and it's 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 not a good place for us. And, and obviously, the whole relationship now with Europe you know, I was watching the German expert on, on Bloomberg this morning talking about it. Right. I mean, this this whole uh, nuclear deal with Australia and the US, I mean, now I realise why France are raging, you know, 66 billion order for, you know, and what that has done, instead of uh, Europe getting stronger and stronger, we are getting weaker and weaker, and that is not a good thing. Should we not be praising Boris for actually getting that submarine deal? Uh, I think the proof will be in the pudding. I think that what generally happens is is that as time goes by, there's not many things that Boris has said or done that turned out to be a good idea, and I think this will turn out not to be a good idea. So no trade deal with the US. Tom, what's your view? Should I be worried? Or uh, we be worried? Well, I think as business, you want frictionless trade. And um, do we have frictionless trade... <laughs> Our, our biggest market is, is Europe, the rest of Europe, and um, then America. So, therefore, frictionless trade for our two biggest markets is not there just now. So, of course, we need to be worried. Um, but what what has happened is we got rid of the whiskey tariff um, that President Trump had put on, so that was a good thing. And, you know... Are we going to get a big deal with America? Doesn't look like it in the short term. Um, but we need to sort out our relations with the rest of Europe. Um, you know, can there's no going back. I mean, I, I didn't vote for Brexit, but 
there's no going back. So we've got to make the most of what we have. And there's a few things to sort out. That is for sure. Now in the latest of our brilliant series in Great Scots, we tell the story of the Royal Bank of Scotland. The Royal Bank of Scotland was founded by Royal Charter on the 31st of May, 1727. The lender opened for business in December of that year in Ship Close, located across from St Giles's Cathedral on Edinburgh's Royal Mile. As soon as it was up and running, the bank began issuing its own notes, a practice that continues today alongside rivals Bank of Scotland and Clydesdale. On the first anniversary of its foundation, RBS invented the overdraft, enabling merchant William Hogg to borrow £1,000, the equivalent of around 136000 in today's values. Over the years, RBS has maintained a strong focus on innovation. It was the first clearing bank to offer house purchase loans in 1972, and also launched the first mobile banking app in 2011. The bank opened its second branch in Glasgow in 1783 and went on to play a major role in supporting the industrial expansion of Glasgow and the west of Scotland. Since 2011, Royal Bank has been encouraging its employees and customers to raise money for STV's Children's Appeal, which works to help one in five children in Scotland affected by poverty. To date, so far, Royal Bank staff and customers have raised over £700,000 for charity. Today, RBS has over 700 branches across the UK, predominantly in Scotland, and employs around 70,000 people. Its commitment to serving the country continues, and the bank remains a staple of high streets everywhere, just as it has done for nearly 300 years. Great Scots on the Go Radio Business Show. A fantastic institution in Scotland and uh, I didn't realise that they'd invented the overdraft. I thought my wife had. <laughs> <laughs> now she spends the overdraft, Donald. Imagine that. You're the inventor of the overdraft, Willie. That's, yeah. that's quite a thing to have in your tombstone. Yeah. But yes, um, I was actually through in Gogerburn uh, um, last week having lunch with the CEO, Alison Rose, and she was telling me that there are more people now in, employed by Royal Bank of Scotland in Scotland than there was before the financial crash, which I think just shows the importance of Royal Bank of Scotland to the Scottish economy. Indeed. Willie? Oh, yeah, what an institution. And uh, I think that uh, the story of Royal Bank, uh, we, you know, we talked last week about David Dale and Robert Owen. I think David Dale was the guy who got the franchise to open in Glasgow, which is fantastic. But as, as Tom says, I mean, huge employer in the country, disappointed, I think, already they've said that they are going to base their, you know, their head office, whatever, it doesn't mean to say they're going to move all the jobs, but their registered office, I believe, sorry, will be moving down south. So that's a, that's a, that's a bit of a disappointment, but, but what a story, what an institution. Yeah, and it, it just reminds me, 1984, I got my first overdraft from Royal Bank of Scotland, £5,000, I'm just remembering that now. I better pay it back. <laughs> Coming up after the break, we'll be talking to Cameron Dixon and Lara Messer, who are the owners of Bare Bones Chocolate. Don't forget, if you want to be part of the board you can't afford, you can put your questions to Tom and Willie by emailing gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. This is the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Supporting the lifeblood of the Scottish economy. Welcome back as we're joined by Cameron Dixon and Lara Messer, owners of Bare Bones Chocolate. If you want business advice or have a question for Tom and Willie, 
You can email us at gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. Welcome, Cameron. Welcome, Lara. And I see you've brought some goodies. Yes, here we have. <laughs> oh, what have we got in this? Oh, goodness, right. Come on, what's in the, what's in the magic bag today? So, so this is our full collection of, of bars. Um, and the idea behind them is the different bars are from, we import beans from areas around the world. And like wine, the, the cocoa beans taste differently from different areas and how they've been grown and processed and then how we've processed them. So, so it's incredible tasting the difference between each of the bars. Right, so I've I got like one. I in one second. I've got the milk chocolate and it's fantastic. Right, I've got <laughs> Bare Bones Bean to Bar. We're going to ask you about that. And yeah. single origin salted dark chocolate. So, so just, just carry on. Don't a bit don't of a moron selling chocolate calling the company Bare Bones. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bit busy just now, so yeah, you well, carry I'll, on. I'll just carry on the interview. You two just <laughs> we'll give us a wee thumbs up when you're ready. Okay? <laughs> Lovely chocolate, by the way. Thank, Thank you. you. Well, obviously, tell us about the business, how you got started in your journey. I think for us, it really started with a passion for specialty coffee and that quickly led into all types of specialty foods and handcrafted products. And at the time, I was working in London as a food photographer and it was for various uh, foods and lifestyle online platforms. So like, my job was to go to these incredible makers and producers like much like us now which is strange to be on the other side of it but I had to go and take photos of all their processes and and how it happens and was just so inspired by them and their lives and it kind of all just fell into place at the one time that we were eating a lot of bean to bar chocolate and I realized you could make it at home in a small batch and that that was possible and that chocolate actually was made. I'd, I never even realised before that chocolate wasn't just melted and became a bar, that actually it went through a process. So learning about that and just was obsessed with it. And actually one day I came home from a food photography shoot and I had a really bad day on the train and was eating this chocolate and just thought, imagine that that's what your life was, was that you made chocolate. And <laughs> I said, like, just it was really that bad a day that I, I just ran away with it in my head and pretty much ran off the train and <laughs> ran up to Cam and was like, this is what we're going to do. And it's amazing because Cameron's actually an uh, engineer and chocolate is very scientific, scientific and full of engineering. So I thought, why not combine ah, our strange, skills? Because I saw it as an, an engineer and I thought, oh, it's very strange to get involved, Cameron. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's quite a difference, but it's been, at the, especially at the very start, chocolate machinery is really expensive and big um, and we were doing it on such a small scale. We were repurposing things and building machines and and it was a real personal challenge. I loved it. That was a, that was a big part at the start, wasn't it? it was and we couldn't How to make it, it small it. and how to get really good quality chocolate out of limited machines. And were you obsessed with chocolate? I became well, obsessed. In the same way that Tom's obsessed with Empire Biscuits. No. <laughs> well, he seems to be. How was that for just, you? Just anyway? as I wipe my mouth here after eating half a bar in 10 seconds. Yeah, it must be really exciting to have a funny, I've woke up every day in my life hoping that I made chocolate. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't have, you know, the, 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 the drive that you had to actually go and do it, Laura. But can I ask, it must have been really exciting to have an idea about something when you really never knew much about it and you had to learn from scratch. 
It really was. And because we were interested in coffee and there's similarities between roasting cacao beans and coffee, we tried to use some of that knowledge and Lara's dad's a coffee roaster. Ah, cool. Um, mm-hmm. So that then played into it. Um, but yeah, it was on forums and trying to find yeah. books and read about things. And it was very it was limited a, information, actually. Like There wasn't many people doing it at the time, so trying to find things you were really stuck in a forum for hours and watching YouTube videos and it was so exciting when you learn anything. For you to actually get these magic bars. Yeah. I mean, look, the two of them. Tell, 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 tell It's funny, I was just... Sorry, I'll be, back in, a, I'll be back in an hour. Yeah, sorry, you just said that. My dad was just a roaster. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard of a wee roaster. Yeah, yeah. So, tell us about some of the funny things that went wrong at the start. Oh, there was quite a lot. <laughs> I think just a lot of mess, wasn't there? Yeah. yeah. And we, yeah, it's obviously the most messy product in the world to work with. But also I think we were trying to do things on such a small scale that you, it was just impossible sometimes. Was this all in your kitchen? Yeah, at the start it was kitchen table. Wow. A full year. So it was yeah. a year from, from the idea and starting making chocolate at the kitchen table to launching. Right, so was there anything in your backgrounds that would say you're going to be entrepreneurs did you think you were going to be entrepreneurs or what was the epiphany you had to say, wow, this is it? We've both been very entrepreneurial and from entrepreneurial families. Right, okay. Um, you've worked for yourself since school. I used to sell badges on eBay. Okay, good. good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, when you were 12. When I was 12, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I used to sell my toys. Like I would watch on eBay if there was toys finishing that I had and if like whatever price they went for and all the bids that were in for it, and then I'd be like, well, I've got that, so I'm going to put it on straight after. <laughs> and we just do that for, for ages. And I remember my grand being like, these are your toys. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> but just didn't really think, oh, I'm selling them now. <laughs> but it was good. So yeah. it's in the DNA. So yeah. Yeah. I used yeah. to build, um, 10 years ago, bicycles, take a, a vintage frame, and then all new parts, refurbish it, um, and it was called Boneyard Bikes. And that's Boneyard kind of bikes. how the bare bones oh, the is, that, came. is that how it came? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and tell me, bean to bar, so what? who who coined that? Is that one of your phrases or is that an industry phrase? Yeah, so that's, that's an industry phrase. Um, and the difference is, is people think of chocolate uh, chocolatiers, they think they make chocolate, but actually they buy in cooking chocolate and remelt it and make truffles and things. Right. Um, but bean to bar is... And then, and then there's also some chocolate makers that do part of the process. Right. Um, but bean to bar is important cocoa beans and, and controlling so you're the doing whole the process. Whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Right. And is that unusual? There's very few makers in the UK doing it. It's definitely bigger in America and in other parts of Europe as well. But it is unusual because it it's so difficult right. <laughs> to do. And, so and, it's definitely easier to melt the chocolate. Yeah, and in America, it's, America's about 10 years ahead of the UK with, with the bean-to-bar movement. There's, there's, in Whole Foods, lots of bean-to-bar chocolate. Right. Bean-to-bar makers, cafes, doing hundreds of tonnes. Um, so is, is this a bit like, I, I know a little bit about the craft beer and what Brewdog did, and, you yeah. know, looking at America to say, right, it's the same thing going to happen in Europe. Is this, is this where you're getting some inspiration and... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Definitely. We see the same thing sort of happening, more makers appearing in the UK. Right. It's funny, I'm glad that you brought up America. One of the, uh, someone who's a bit of an expert in chocolate, you can tell by looking at me, <laughs> um, I was really surprised when I first started going to the States maybe 30 years ago that how I, I found it difficult to find a chocolate that I liked. I mean, I absolutely 
Yeah, uh-huh. the taste of Hershey didn't turn oh, me on at all. Yeah. And I think that the ta- you know, the, the, the palate in Europe, you know, we were used to a different type of chocolate. And I always thought, wow, the, the really good chocolates coming from Europe to the States could kind of run amok here. And it was yeah. interesting that we've probably done it through biscuits rather than chocolate. You know, some of the better <laughs> biscuits. So I know they changed some of the names, uh-huh. you know, uh, f- for the States. But I was really disappointed with the quality of the chocolate in America. Uh-huh. <laughs> And your chocolate is ethical and all that, sustainable. So tell us more, and that is a growing market, is it mm-hmm. not? It's absolutely. It's so we pay above the fair trade rate for the cocoa beans. And are you dealing directly with the with the farmers or the? So at, at our scale right now, we can't do that, right? Um, because you'd need to import a whole container, right? But so we is work, that an aim? Oh, an aim, yeah, yes. absolutely. In the future, so we deal with with one. Um, supplier and she visits the farms and works directly with them and, right. and meets all the farmers and then we have a really good relationship with her. I see. Um, and then we buy pallet loads right. from Europe. And, and and tell me about the journey from the idea and the train or the bad day to getting um, the engineering right. I mean, how, it, it just sounds in, incredible to me. How, so how did the journey go? It really was just a lot of trial and error, wasn't it? So you were learning by doing? Yeah, absolutely. I had no idea how to do it. And we knew... Actually, even thinking back now, I'm not sure exactly how we came up with everything because <laughs> the, the bars as they are now are pretty much what we launched with, with the flavours and, and minor tweaks of the roasting. But it really is what, what it was at the beginning. And that was only almost three years ago. So it's, it's strange that we we were so set on what we wanted them to taste like and it's actually just carried through, which is great. But it was it was really difficult to find out all, all just all the small things, like even tempering chocolate is is so difficult and we hadn't done that before and, and just figuring out from different books and YouTube videos and reading everything that was possible. And, and did you trying. get help along the way here? No, it was really, apart from my dad helped a lot um, learning with roasting uh, the cacao beans, but apart from that, it really was just Trying it, eating it, trying it, eating it. Just yeah. <laughs> to eat chocolate. Can we go on the panel for that? You know, it's really help in the future, yeah. just yeah. like Wally and I know. So, Cameron, you said that the, the, some of the equipment you required was quite expensive or, or very expensive. So um, how did you manage to finance buying the equipment? At the start, we had some savings, some loans from parents, and then it's grown from retained profits. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a slow process, buying expensive machines and then trying to also increase how much stock you're buying yeah. and packaging to get the cost down has been really, really hard. So you've been learning about cash flow. Yeah, yeah. Pain, painfully. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and did you get help with Scottish Edge? Yes, Edge really, it's changed our lives through wow. financially, but also oh, the absolutely. whole process is just, it's made us better in business and really appreciate everything in every step. And they, they are so supportive with everything. Evelyn is just, she's our, probably one of our best customers as well, <laughs> <laughs> which is just incredible. Yes, so how did you want... get to hear about Edge? Um, I actually think a lot of different friends had been had been involved in the Edge process and we we just thought, like, now's the time to, to grow and we actually took part in Edge twice. Did you? Right. Okay. We we were part of Young Edge the year before and in last or this year. Yeah. So this we, year so we was... won one Young Edge last year. Great. Yeah. And then one. What did that mean financially? Oh, it was, it was just incredible. It meant that we were able to buy 
the machinery that would allow us to get to the next stage of yeah. output. Yeah. Yeah. I oh. think, Tom, maybe for some of the listeners, maybe explain a wee bit about what Edge is. Yeah, so, I mean, Scottish Edge run by Evelyn MacDonald and um, what we're trying to do there is there isn't a market mechanism, Willie, for businesses as small as yours. So banks are, are not the place to raise money and there isn't a market mechanism. If we were in the States, there would be lots of venture money, mm. but there isn't. And therefore, um, the Hunter Foundation... Royal Bank of Scotland, great Scots today, and um, Scottish Government came together to, to put the fund together. And then we went, and Willie, Brian Souter, James Watt at Brewdog, Chris Van der Kyle, Kevin Doran, they all put in money to help fellow entrepreneurs. So it's people come and they pitch, but the one thing which I just don't allow is we never say no we just say not yet, and but obviously you guys have won. But when somebody's getting turned down, it's never no, it's not yet, and here's the things, so please come back. Mm. And it's, it's it's been one of the most important things um, at this stage of helping businesses in Scotland. It's fantastic to hear a startup business at early stages saying that help that was there, that you wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for that. And that's fantastic. That's what it was set up for. And we hope there's hundreds of other small businesses you know, that, that are absolutely going to follow that, You know, whether it's Entrepreneurial Spark or The Edge. I think Scotland is, is, is very, very fortunate that we have a network we've got a kind of infrastructure there now that we never had before you know I know Tom has been striving to try and put this together for 25 years but I think now it'd be fair we've got an infrastructure there that's helped us you know our, our failures in startups now is is now way way much better than it was 25 years ago I think way back we were in the bottom quartile and now I think we're in the top quartile for mm -hmm. success so it's, it's great to hear people who have been recipients of the funds from Edge but also it's great to hear from the winners uh, of the Edge Fund how, how are you selling your products at the moment? Where can we buy it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we work with a lot of incredible coffee shops and delis and we're actually in Selfridges now as well which is in really Selfridges. exciting Brilliant. Uh, but they we sell online as well and right. then through lots of amazing shops that really share the same values as us which is was so important to us that like as we are a, a sustainable business and all of our packaging is made from recycled paper coffee cups the nice colorful boxes so it was important for us to find wholesale partners that really understood that and would be able to share this story as well and, so and how do you tell your story because you know it's it's a busy world and everybody's there and then if you're in Selfridges limited shelf space how do you get to tell your story I think it's hard so what we've tried to do from the packaging was keep it really simple and, and bare bones and strip everything back that the the outside packaging is a reference to the quality of the chocolate inside and it's not sold just on the the packaging um and what we try to do on the back is keep the key points about the, the cooperatives and the farms we work with and a bit about the taste notes, but there's also a, a QR code on the back that you can scan and it'll take you to a bit about how the chocolate's been made and who uh -huh. grew the chocolate. And, and but, is, but it's hard and we've found it hard. Is there such a thing as influencers in your marketing? My daughter works in influencers are but I'm just wondering yeah. if there's chocolate I mean Willie and I are looking for a you job you are chocolate like influencers <laughs> 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 unashamedly yes I am <laughs> is there such a thing 
there definitely the food market in on Instagram was really good for us at the start and actually people that were that had lovely homes and that were interested in interiors because the packaging is quite a beautiful thing to have in your kitchen that was really good working with them but it actually all came very organically that at the time because I was in food marketing pretty much that it was it came naturally to me to build the Instagram and to to connect with people through the imagery. Yeah, but then one of the big breaks we had was Annalisa Barberi from The Guardian, food writer. Right. She tried the, the Dominican salted chocolate and said it was her um, ratatouille food critic moment. I don't know what that means, yeah, but it sounds, well, o- sounds okay. It's really good. <laughs> a film about a little rat who loves yeah. food. and he- I knew what it was. I knew exactly. Yeah. I'm the only one who doesn't know yeah. the ratatouille food moment. Yeah, right. need grandchildren. <laughs> <laughs> but that blew up sales yeah, and brought a whole incredible. different um, yeah. audience to the chocolate. So is there a food critic in the Herald, Donald, who can... Because that chocolate is delicious. Yeah, we'll put it on it. Joanna Blythman um, is a food writer uh, and she's really into ethical um, mm-hmm. foods. She's great. And then, of course, there's Ron McKenna who will do our eating out reviews. Um, maybe need to find him a cafe where he just sits in his job. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. But can I ask you, just in terms of the volumes you're now selling, and remind us from the start, when you did start, where you are now, and then are you not tempted to get outlets that are maybe not quite as ethical because it would mean growth? So our journey, we're, we're growing this year. Last year we grew about five times. This year we're growing about three times. Wow. That rate really works for us. And there's at first we started just selling chocolate bars. Um, now we're supplying some restaurants and bakeries with chocolate for baking and cooking, um, but also hot chocolate. And there's no one who's really doing um, single origin hot chocolate and treating you can go into coffee shops. What do you mean by a single origin Sorry. chocolate? I'm, <laughs> I'm getting confused. I got the ratatouille. Like, I'm lost now. You don't know what that is, Donald? Oh. <laughs> in, in coffee shops, you can go into some speciality coffee shops and they'll offer three different coffees. But that's never been a thing for hot chocolate. So, right. so they'll offer you a Kenyan coffee and an Ethiopian coffee and taste notes. And now we're doing that with hot chocolate and you can have two different hot chocolates and, and the flavours are just from the beans. They're not from syrups and orange additives and things. Which wow. I think is really exciting for people who are really interested in flavour and wanting to try things. Because yeah. you don't have any additives at all. We'll need no, to hook so. you up with a previous yeah. guest, Gordon, at Grow Coffee. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, he was yeah. Um, a guest of ours a couple yeah, of weeks ago. Yeah, and that's ago. what we're all about, and, connecting, um, networking. So we'll, yeah. we'll connect you. I yeah. listened to That'd that episode great. and I was totally sold on going with the view and yeah. the yeah. idea of it all. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's great. You, you, you sound as if you're you're trying to dovetail right into the whole hipster movement that's going on at the moment, you know, artisan coffee shops and bakers (laughs) and what have you. You also sound like you would be happy to being a small quality boutique manufacturer. Am I wrong or do you want to go big time commercial? I think we want to maintain our quality but get bigger but not sacrifice any of that. Yeah. I think there's a lot of space to do that in areas and export and how big are you aiming to be? There is a an American chocolate maker called Dandelion and they really have been our inspiration from the beginning because they are doing everything very well. That they've they've never lost sight of the quality and they've really just solidified their brand, haven't they, in, in Bean to Bar in America and they've got a beautiful big workshop that I think we've tried to emulate constantly. But 
they really are the biggest in America and we would like to be one of the biggest in, in the UK because there really isn't anyone that's doing everything the way that we are with quality and how the packaging looks and also our customer service and, and how we connect with our customers. So I think we we would like to be big in the craft chocolate movement, but maybe not in the like confectionery aisles of supermarkets. Does that mean that you might have to find bigger premises because you've just moved into a new factory, is that right? Just the moved. Side, is that right? It's um, actually just at Salt Market, oh, um, right. the railway arches there. So we've just moved in there in August and we also hired four more staff members as well, which Brilliant. is really wow. exciting. It's such a cool space because the railway arches and it's got the glass arched front and... We've got an opportunity to do a little retail space, um, uh-huh. which we've been doing this weekend. Um, serving hot chocolate, selling the bars. And right, okay. It's a real different stage for us in the business, having this space and having people in to do tours and tastings. And You've said you've taken on four staff. How does that work in terms of the dynamic? Is this all new to you, running a teams? Or? It, is, it is different. There's So there's seven of us in total now, but it's just amazing that I think we always wanted to do things ourselves and now we realise so much that having more hands really means you're getting a lot more done. <laughs> so it's just been incredible to be able to work with such big coffee shops or bakeries and know that we can deal with that with, with our machine capacity and the amount of hands that are wrapping bars or getting hot chocolate ready and it's, it's exciting for the next step. Yeah, because at the start we were so scared to hand over any processes um, so my sister was our first employee, and that was that was a big thing. Family business, over. yeah. Um, but then we learned you just need to trust people, um, and it was so, it was a shame because we were almost holding the business back. We were scared to grow because we couldn't fulfil right. orders, and now we feel like it's just an exciting time that we can grow and and do what we want and, and take the opportunities. So you'll be like, I am brew. Only two of these have got the formula and it's yep. in the same. <laughs> you, you know half and you know half and that's it and you bring it together. But I think it's, do not underestimate that that type of growth in relation to employees in a short time. It's fantastic. If every small company starting off was at seven employees already, we'd, we'd be in a real good place. So congratulations. Thank well you. well oh, done thank on that. You. Yeah. It, it, it sounds as if you've had, um, a, I love the, ethos of learn by doing um, that's what we coach all the time um, is there anything else you would you would say Scotland could do to help you so you were helped by the Scottish Edge was there anything else along the way you think that could have been there to help you do your journey a little bit easier a little bit quicker a little bit less risk I don't think so. Don't think so? No, I mean, that's, that's great. That's fantastic. But also, we've not asked for things. We've, we've just been in a kind of position where we've done everything ourselves. And, and growing quite organically. Yeah, and it's, it's great that you're still connected to the edge, you know, even after coming through as winners, that you're still getting that help with Evelyn and, and the team there. And that's, that's vital, you know, and never yeah. forget that. And as Thomas says earlier, I'm sitting here, my brother owns one of these artisan, you know, coffee shops. I will certainly talk to him about trying your products. And, you. and I think, you know, the, we've had other people three weeks in a row, I think we had bakers on. So certainly, yeah. hopefully, they're still listening to the programme the way that you do, how you've yep. learned about the place. And this is what we're all about. This is a success for this programme. If we can connect people and help businesses flourish, that's what we're trying to do here. So, but uh, uh, I'm absolutely amazing story. And I think that starting to get the family in, 
that'll bring its own you know, <laughs> challenges, right? Uh, Someone <laughs> who's got all his family working in the business. But when, if they have the same ethos as yours and the same goals as yours, it'll work out fine or fantastic. But uh, I think I've got every single one of my family members working in the business <laughs> um, and it's worked out okay for me. The, the premises that you're in at the moment, obviously you've just moved in, do you think that, you know, that if you keep going the way you're going, are you going to outgrow them? Probably. I think we thought we wouldn't, but we recently just got two new stone grinders, which is where the chocolate is ground in, and they are much bigger than the ones we've got now. So even just seeing them beside each other, you think, how are we going to add more into this space? But it is big, But so hopefully a few years yeah. not moving again. And we hope long term and everything could fall into place. So we're in the railway arches. And we were kind of hoping when we were ready, one of them, another one becomes available. Yeah. And we yeah. could, we could expand into that. That would be the absolute yeah. ideal. Yeah. Not because it's, it's such a cool area in and the city. What would you say to anybody who's listening this morning, who's thinking about starting a business here in Scotland? Because you're, you're absolutely who we're trying to help at Scottish Edge. Absolutely. Well, he came up with the idea of this show to in, encourage business. So. I know you probably think, oh no, we're we're just getting on with our business, but but you will be an inspiration. Your story yes. will be an inspiration to others. So, any tips, any thoughts? If MD's out there in their bedroom, in their kitchen, uh -huh. on the train, yeah, on the train with a bad day, <laughs> having a bad day, <laughs> what would you say? I would definitely say just do it. Really, I think you can work everything out, but I think starting is definitely one of the harder parts and gathering as much knowledge as you can on your specialist subject is so important but really just starting and also finishing like making sure you follow through that idea I think is important and, and keep going is a huge thing. It's a remarkable success story but are there any times during that journey where you're worried about failure or anything that went wrong and what did you learn from it? We've had a lot of hard times, as in really, really late nights, long hours, things going wrong in the workshop, batches messing up, and I I'm not sure what we've learned from it. Is it still happening? Is it still happening? It still happens, yeah. We're home a wee tiny bit earlier now, but... Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. what do you see as your biggest challenges as you continue your journey? Definitely managing everything there's so many parts to the chocolate and importing the cacao beans now with customs and stuff is is tricky because it's so out of our control and we don't know when they're actually going to arrive and you can be as prepared as you think you can but they're still stuck in we've got a machine that's coming from Peru that we, was meant to be here in June and is still stuck in a container somewhere that's not had the right paperwork and it's but we don't know when we're going to get that so yeah. There's still a lot of challenges with, with these things. Yeah, and you don't know what you don't know, do you? You just, <laughs> you just, you just, you just <laughs> new stuff happens. And, yeah. So what's the best bit about having your own business then? Specifically a chocolate business is that you get to eat a lot of chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Yeah. I think it's been really exciting um, moving into the new space with the new team. Yeah. That's that's been the nicest days, and you come yeah. in and there's people to talk to, and everyone's doing something, and everyone's passionate about it, and you can all buy into the product and what you're doing. So there's a shared mission. Yeah. yeah, definitely yeah. trying to build a movement 
of like the more chocolate we sell and the more hot chocolate that it really does support everyone in the chain and that's from the farmers to even the packaging we work with an amazing printer windmill in Aberdeen and it just means like the more that we grow and the more that we're all invested in it it really does support everyone and that was like the point and the business and how much that's what we really care about yeah pay pay the living wage to our our team and everything sourced from within the UK and Great. So look yeah, after the fantastic. team, and you're, but you're both entrepreneurs. As a team together, how's that dynamic working? You know, is it, do you get clashes? Do you, do you have slightly different ways of operating? It's actually been amazing. <laughs> we were really worried about it for, and put it off for months because we were so worried that we weren't going to find an amazing team. And actually, everyone brings something so different and. We feel really lucky that everybody wants to work with us, but also that they can bring their own skills and enthusiasm to the business. And then between myself and Lana, we do work on very different parts of the business. So, yeah. so we that's great. <laughs> that helps. That helps. Different yeah. rooms. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that definitely helps. And when you get that other arch, you know, you can work in that one. Yeah. That's how it works. <laughs> that yeah. That's a great thing about expansion. You get that wee bit of more than social distancing. Yeah. Can I just ask a, a question? Obviously, you've made a big decision. You both had good jobs. I take it in the early days there was a financial sacrifice for you when you decided to do this. I think it's important yeah. that young people out there know that. Yeah, yeah it was, we, it we was a full year and a half with no wages. Wow. Yep. wow. And we wow. had to move. So at the time we were living in Leamington Spa, so we had to move home to Glasgow and back in for mums and dads, which was difficult. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, and our, our workshop was in Lara's mum and dad's garage. Wow. <laughs> so it was living with mums and dads, working in this little garage with no windows. The machinery pulled so much power that the lights flickered. <laughs> it was horrible. White walls, white plastic walls. It was really... We had to have the vision. We're like, yeah. we're getting out of here. Did, did Lara's dad come to you at the end of the month with the electricity bills and like, you need to chip in? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> this is the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Supporting the lifeblood of the Scottish economy. Well, now we come to the part of the show when we ask our guests 10 quick-fire questions. But because there's two of you, we're going to make you answer the same questions. Okay. Mr. okay. Ah. Right, Lara Cameron, what's your best and worst traits? Lara first. Oh, no, I'm not very good at quick-fire. <laughs> Cameron, what's our best and worst traits? Yes, why don't... Why don't you see yeah. a bit of each other? No, just to just start the pot this morning. <laughs> don't want the business going under. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'd say my worst trait is probably being a perfectionist with things, but then maybe my best trait is that I want things to be perfect. Okay, great. Cameron. Lara, what's his best trait? <laughs> Help him out. Um... You're very analytical with things, which is good. Like you definitely break things down, and that helps so much when there's problems. And That's yeah, probably, yeah, yeah, and probably worse is I really beat myself up about things. I get super critical yeah. of myself. I think okay. you need to work on that. Yeah. It's not a good yeah. thing. Yeah, you, know, you end up. Yeah, one, one of the team said that yesterday. Boy. I said, I said, I'm an idiot, and she said, you wouldn't call me an idiot. So why are you calling yourself an idiot? That's a oh, great. Yeah. Nice. That's a great thing. That's yeah. Nice. yeah. So, what's the best book you've read and are you currently reading anything? Cameron? I I really like Malcolm Gladwell's books. 
I think his, his work's incredible. Um, but no, I'm not currently reading anything. Lara? I'm not currently reading anything because I keep falling asleep. But <laughs> um, I really enjoyed the Brewdog uh, business book. I thought that was great. Yeah, Very good. Excellent. Yeah. You love your food. So what's your favourite restaurant in Scotland? Oh, I actually love Pisano for pizza. Just yeah. for a nice, simple pizza. It's um, a lot of people's favourite restaurant. Yeah. It's so busy, oh, no. yes. Cameron? Since it, Pisano's up there for me and um, also Inver restaurant in the banks of Lock, Lock Inver. Oh, indeed, indeed. In there. What's your favourite TV programme or series and what are you currently watching, if anything? I absolutely love Shark Tank. Shark Tank. <laughs> it was on Shark Netflix Tank. and we binged it for for <laughs> weeks and it was actually leading up to Edge, which was quite good that All we were right, like yeah. in the, the mindset of like Dragon's Den and that was good. I won't tell Theopathetus that you prefer Shark Tank to Dragon's Den. <laughs> yeah. The last film you watched and what's your all-time favourite? Ratatouille. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to watch this Ratatouille. Yeah, you'll love it. You need to. It was our, our first date we watched Ratatouille. Yeah. yeah. Really? Which actually meant so much that then Annalisa said that and it all was great. This is going a bit weird now. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Trying to bring it back. What music are you listening to and what's your favourite band? I just got a record player so I'm really excited about that and also, I listen to All Out 50s on Spotify, and it's like just a compilation of 50s music, and it's great. 50s music, wow. Great, so are, you, are you back yeah. into vinyl? Yeah. Right, yeah. great. I love 50s music. It's so good. Vinyl. It's always just so happy. Love it. Yeah. If you were in power and could change one thing, what would it be? Cameron, you'll probably take ages analysing this oh. one. It's a quite fire one, so I'll come to Lara first. Uh, that you were allowed cats in a food workshop. <laughs> this, is, this is definitely <laughs> very bizarre Cameron give me, give me a sensible answer <laughs> oh. we need your analytical brain here ten, Help. 10 o'clock drinking I'm not allowed to buy alcohol after 10 I would, I would take, get rid of that good <laughs> I think the cats was good <laughs> what countries have you most enjoyed travelling to whether for business or pleasure oh I think going to Berlin was good because it, they've got such a vibrant coffee scene and that was at the beginning of our coffee journey. Your best and worst investment? Is this business? <laughs> well, it's <laughs> for you, it's a life of cat. <laughs> I don't want you to pick one of these up in the future and see the here's cat. a cat flavour chocolate bar. That's the same, I'm not having <laughs> Do you pay cash or credit card? Card. Card. Younger generation. And the final one for you. What does your perfect day look like? Well, out for breakfast. Yeah, out for breakfast. A nice coffee. A walk would be nice in the park. That's brilliant. Well, thank you, Lara. Thank you, Cameron. A phenomenal success story. Wish you all the best for the future. After the break, it's the board you can't afford, where Tom and Willie answer your business questions and offer brilliant advice. If you want to take part, then simply email your questions to gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. The board you couldn't afford. This is the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Welcome back as we go into the boardroom with Hunter and Hockey and answer your calls with business advice, insight and inspiration. It's the board you can't afford. 
If you have any questions you want read out in the show or wish to speak directly to Tom and Willie, you can email gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk and you can join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. We're going to our phone lines now and first up is Ros McCarran of the Lennon Partnership. Welcome to the show, Ros. Hi there, hi Donald. Uh, so tell us a wee bit about yourself and then what's your question for Tom and Willie? Hi there, Tom and Willie. Nice to speak to you both. Morning. Morning, um, Ross. So I work for a company called the Lennox Partnership, which is an organisation that uh, helps support people back into work. So my job in employer services is to engage with local employers to try and fill their vacancies with our participants. In particular, I work on the Fair Start Scotland contract across North Ayrshire. In my experience um, and across the sector, some of the application um, processes are way too lengthy. They're a bit too complex. It's not really relevant to the job that the person's applying for. And sometimes some of your participants don't actually have computer skills. Just your thoughts on that. Oh, great question. Tom. Morning, Ross. It's Tom here. And, Hi, Tom. Um, you're working down in Ayrshire, are you? I am indeed. I know that's your neck of the wood. Oh, yes, my neck of the wood. So, so where are you based? I'm based in Irvine or Drossen. All right, good, good. Well, I mean, I, I think you make a really good point. I mean, there's all the stuff in the news just now about lots of vacancies and therefore, from the employer's point of view, em- employers are desperate to get people, to get them into their businesses and therefore they need to look at their processes, make it a bit slicker so that they're getting the right person for the right job in the most seamless way. And... Um, how do we do that? Well, I, I think it's a matter of um, you speaking to them, but employers themselves must understand that um, in order for them to fill these vacancies, they need to relook at all of their um, em- em- employment processes and make it easier. I mean, what do you think? Absolutely, I agree. I mean, you know, we've got some people, I totally understand the application process if it's a professional qualification and it needs certain um, criteria filled totally understand that but for the majority of the people in your your contracts it's it's job entry jobs that we're doing you know so we're finding we've got online applications for jobs that are maybe just a shop assistant um or a, a retail assistant um a trolley assistant for example i had one man who was a retired plumber whose ideal part-time job was to work in b and q right trying to get um someone into that kind of job is um, quite difficult because it's an online process um, which the man in question didn't really have any computer skills obviously we there to support that but if we if this your service wasn't available then the potential employers are just missing out on so many really good job uh, candidates for them morning Ross, it's willie here how are you i'm good thanks willie nice to speak to you i think that's a really good example you've given there's a guy who would have been absolutely perfect for that job. A guy yeah. where if I walk into B&Q, he knows where the nuts and bolts are, he knows what a U-bend is, he, he's, he's, you know, he would be totally the perfect guy for that job <laughs> and what you get is someone telling you because he can't work a computer. And I, yeah. I, I think that that's a real shame and I think, you know, it's 
there is processes laid down now by you know national companies, and unfortunately they're losing out on a lot of good people because of it. I would say at the moment, to be fair, that because of the situation where you know the the amount of jobs and vacancies there, I think you might find that some of them may have relaxed some of the processes. But yeah. I I think that this is somewhere definitely. If if someone came to me with that kind of qualification, I would be certainly help them with the weaknesses that he has to fill that job. And I think that's a it's a shame that someone like that should not lose out you know should lose out in a job opportunity like that because of the skills that he doesn't have rather than the skills that he has exactly so my, one of my key roles really is to engage with local employers to build that relationship yeah. um, and you know try and match your candidates to their criteria uh, back and forth so we do have a lot of good local relationships in North Ayrshire um, which is great I find most employers quite responsive but it's it's the bigger kind of places that, you know, that we'd mentioned that it's the online application process, which is lengthy. But I know, you know, sometimes these processes are put in places for reasons. Yeah. But, you know, like we said, there's thousands of vacancies out there just now. We've got over 60 vacancies to fill in North Ayrshire, um, which we can't do because we've got direct relationships with the employer. But beyond that, there's frustrations because of the lengthy um, online uh, processes but we will keep banging the door yeah. and asking the questions well it's a really important job that you have and I think trying to help people at that level to get into jobs it, it's vital that there's people that you try to help them and I think that I'll guarantee you that someone will come and say that my system is not perfect right and I'd like to think that people we were dealing with would feed back to us to say look you should have a look at this because you're losing out on good people because of it but want to wish you all the best with that and, and hopefully that uh, as I say, things will be relaxed a wee bit. Thank you. And Ros, can I just add to that? Is there any examples of best practice? If people are listening in from their business, you say, go and look at the application process this company has. It works. Well, you put me on the spot there. <laughs> so, um, some of the application process, I wouldn't say that I've got one prime example there to give you that it's an online application process, sorry, that is quite straightforward. Can't think off the top of my head who would be uh, a good one, but generally when I approach um, employers locally, they are open to taking CVs direct. Sometimes we can, you know, work our way around it. Um, some employers might take a CV and then ask us to get the candidate to do the application because they like to look at their CV or we've had a good conversation, you know, discussing what the candidate's strengths are and how we think they would be a good fit for their business. Oh, that's great, Ross. So, but. To answer to your question, I can't give you an example just now where I could really think that's really good practice. Listen, Ross, as, as Willie said, you're doing an important job down there in Ayrshire, so more power to your elbow. Yep. Keep keep going and keep plugging away. And thanks for calling in. Thank you. Yep. Thank thanks you. For your call. Bye-bye. Bye. Next up is Frank Willoughby, owner of Downtown City Maps and Guides. So welcome to the show, Frank. Hi, John. Thank you for having me on. Hi. Delighted. Uh, Tom and Willie are here for uh, to answer your question. But first, can you tell us a wee bit about your business and what you do? Yeah, of course. I mean, um, but as the name suggests, we uh, downtown city maps. It's not a new business, but we've been around for quite a few years. Uh, we're a small team, and we produce tourist information in Glasgow through city maps and guides, and also in Edinburgh, Loch Lomond, and Argyle. Um, you know, since. The the, uh, the the COVID pandemic, we, we were basically shut down and we've had um, 
we've really had to reset and completely think about how we do things. So we, we completely pivoted the business from a print-based uh, print and distribution business to, to a digital platform where we uh, effectively create digital guides every month in Glasgow and Edinburgh and Loch Lomond, and we distribute those into the same traditional tourist locations as before, but we use QR coding now to allow people to scan and get the guides directly onto their phones and then find their way around the city with all the different uh, stuff they want to do while they're in town. Um, so that's that, that's a basic background to what Sounds we do. great. Uh, we're all now fully in the digital world, including the Herald. Yeah. Um, so what's your question for Tom and Willie? Well, the question that um, I was putting through was, was really to say, you know, one of the things that um, I've noticed when we were in London uh, a couple of weeks ago was how open and uh, the way the city has completely opened up and unfortunately up here we're, we're not doing the same and um, especially to incoming uh, tourists both leisure and visitor and really it's about how you know we're looking at developing this digital platform and moving it into other cities but we need to try and take a step forward and we're looking at maybe going to London and would what would their advice be in terms of it would be better to partner with people down there maybe even consider a franchise um, because the investment to do it ourselves is quite high. Great question, Willie. Morning, Frank. <clears throat> Hi, Willie. I probably think I'm in a better position. I'm down in London a bit more to answer this than Tom. Um, <laughs> I, I think that you you would be a good judge. You know, you would see the you know the uptake on your services and the way it's going. But I I think at the moment I still don't think we're back to a hundred percent normal. So I wouldn't be rush at the moment to invest. Um, I would be advising that if there was a way that you could expand, you know, mentioned through franchising or whatever, um, I would advise anyone at the moment that uh, until we definitely get back to some semblance of normal, that, you know, any capital expenditure, I would be thinking twice about it unless I was really definite that the volume would increase accordingly and that my return on investment or that my ROI would be there. So I would be looking at options. Obviously, everybody's wanting to look at how they can grow their business. At the moment, the advice would be, how can we do that without spending too much money? Uh, and I would, you know, I would not be looking at going and open new premises, try to open a new place until I was a hundred percent certain of where the market and what what I'm trying to do. I mean, it sounds like you know, great business, great product. Um, I would certainly be be looking to, as that way to expand rather, as I say, than than opening up it again in new cities. What's your gut feeling then, Frank? You've heard Willie's advice. Uh, I think it's really good advice, and, and and my gut feeling is 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 exactly the same. I'm, I mean, I think you know we're a small team, we're a team of three, and so we don't have the the in house resource to actually you know sort of to to to, to go if you like global. But on the other hand, um, one of the, you know our preference is to grow in Scotland, but the problem we have is that um, it's lagging behind. So you know the, the visitor footfall that's that's already starting to come back into places like London and Manchester. Um, you know, it's giving advertisers confidence to to commit, and and up here they're not really getting that same uh, level playing field, and as a result, the confidence isn't there yet to to, to make those commitments. Uh, so yeah, I think it's great advice. But it's probably just a short term difference between Scotland and England. It tends to be there's a sort of lag, maybe even you know weeks, maybe so months. I, I think that uh, we've had so many false dawns with COVID. 
And I think yes. until we've got absolute certainty that we have a pathway to completely opening up again. I think we're on the same page here, Frank. You know, I think we're agreeing. Uh, and, I, I, you know, I, I hope and pray that you'll be able to, you know, get on with your full planning, hopefully within months. But uh, the way it's looking at the moment, you know, I, I, I don't see that happening for at least six to nine months. I agree, and I think, and I think, um, you know, the, the the difficulty here is that whilst the staycation boom was great for the outlying areas, the cities, and especially places like Glasgow, who really are set up for three hundred and sixty-five days a year, tourist income, whether it's leisure or business travel, conferences, conventions, and so on, they really need that to return. Yep, I agree, indeed, and hopefully, COP twenty-six will be the start of the. Uh, conference season fully and everyone will feel confident to move forward yeah. but thank you for your call Frank yeah. definitely hope so and thanks <laughs> very much for having me on thank you for calling Frank well, good luck brilliant. good luck thank you very much we ran out of time last week because um, I really wanted to discuss Sir Clive Sinclair you know who sadly passed away would you say he was a source of inspiration for entrepreneurs could he have been the new Steve Jobs did you learn anything from him? Because there was lots of failures in there and both of you, Tom and Willie, have, have talked about how failures are actually part of the growing process. I certainly think that uh, Clive was certainly a pioneer. You know, he, he was he was a wizard. You know, uh, he was a man who took risks and like, you know, like the modern day, you know, the Elon Musk of this world and, you know, the um, the other uh, engineering pioneers, he is up there. He is up there. I, I believe, you know, when he passed away, Elon Musk was one of the first persons to pay tribute to him because he was a risk taker. He's a big risk taker. Some of the things in his time he got right, you know, he's, he's seen as the father of the modern day computer. Some of the things he tried with the C5 and, he's, you know, that he's uh, maybe off the wall ideas. But certainly, you know, Britain and the UK has got a lot to thank people like Clive Singler for, you know, for actually having imagination and trying to bring things to the fore. And I think, you know, Dyson has taken that forward now and he took over the mantle and he's probably been more commercially successful uh, than, than, than Sir Clive was before. But I, I think that um, that he is certainly someone who will be remembered for his, his genius uh, and, and, again, for some of his wacky ideas. Do you think uh, if he was starting out now, the environment is better for that kind of mindset than it was when, you know, he was in his 80s, you know, back then. I think what would help him today is, is that investors require there's more discipline around your thinking and your spend. So I think that that would have helped them greatly, the way it's helped Elon Musk and the way it's helped other people, and Dyson in this time. So I definitely think that he would prosper and today, as a as an innovator, he would certainly still make his mark. Well, he was a, a master of technology, um, but the advance of technology brings with it some problems, including the increased use of AI and robotics. Do you see that as an opportunity or a threat? Because lots of businesses are looking and saying, well, we can get a robot to do that, uh, and we don't need as many staff. I think this is a really good question, because I think... In the not-too-distant future, there will be a major debate about the pros and cons of technology. Uh, and people, you know, the, the whole cyber security thing, I think, will make people think. Some of the things that are going on at the moment, so 
technology on one hand is absolutely fantastic and, and people, you know, people in technology will tell you, you know, if we don't get in the bandwagon, you know, we'll, we'll be left behind. Um, some people may say that as scare tactics, right? You know, if you're not there, then you're not in the game. Uh, I believe, but that the whole AI thing and the robotic thing, we're, we're getting into a, a bit of a dangerous place. Right, and I think uh, it'll be interesting to see how this whole debate ramps up in the next t 10 years. And I do believe that the thing that will bring it to the forefront will be cybersecurity. Indeed. The positive aspect, uh, though, is it creates a lot of jobs building the robotics and getting involved in AI. Mm -hmm. Are our schools set up to yeah. deliver pupils that can go there and get a job? No, the, the education system is not set up to meet those needs. Uh, but to be fair, you know, uh, education systems can adapt and I'm sure that they will if we see that this is the way forward. But um, at the moment, I still think it's it's in its infancy. There's a lot of people talking about, you know, driverless cars, robots, drones mm. delivering things. I'm just waiting to see the dangers that it brings. You know, we've not had the same amount of PR in relation to some of the tragedies that have happened with driverless cars and vehicles as we have in the people spending millions of dollars promoting them. So um, it'll be interesting to watch how that goes. Yeah, I think I agree with you in terms of the, the potential risks. Yeah. Uh, I did have a car that parked itself, but I was too frightened to press the button. I just didn't want to lose control. Yeah. I've, I've got a car that parks itself, but it's because I've got a driver. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, unfortunately on that, that's all we have time for, but hopefully you've enjoyed the extended show. If you have any feedback for us or want to know more about how you can get involved, visit thisisgo.co.uk and don't forget, you can put your questions to Tom and Willie by emailing gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk and join the Twitter conversation at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. Business show with Hunter and Hockey. Listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you get your podcasts. podcasts.